You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's good to have you here today. Uh, we're in the middle of our series on Daniel called Stand, and we are exploring what it means to stand, that is to stand up, to stand out, to stand firm, to stand strong. And in these days, there's a lot of people taking a lot of stands and, make, and, and asserting themselves in a lot of ways in our society. It's almost the thing you're supposed to do, and yet so often those stands are just different versions of selfishness, self-interest, self-will. So we're going to look today again at another way where we can stand along with um, uh, Daniel in Babylon and discover how we can stand by God's grace, humbly, faithfully, and fully. We're in Daniel chapter 6. It's probably the most uh, um, well-known story in this whole book. Do you know which one it is? Daniel in the yeah, in the lion's den, right? Um, some of you, if you've gone to Sunday school or as a child or you had your parents even read this story to you in some shortened version, we think we know what this whole story is about. And it goes something like this. If you're as faithful as Daniel was and as strong and courageous, then God will deliver you and you will be safe. Does that sound about right? Does that always happen that way? No. So um, there's so much more to this story, and I think we're going to find that out. I love this last song, There is Another in the Fire. That actually is a reference to uh, Daniel chapter 3, which will be our last week. I know we're not doing the book of Daniel in order, okay, but more thematically. And that's when that was the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace with another who happens to show up there. That's going to be our last week because I think that's a great summary of the book. We've got something similar today with Daniel in the lion's den. I love, um, and it is a story of courage, but not the kind of courage that we often associate that we see in this world. Okay? Mark Twain, I thought, was apt in what he said. He said, it is curious, curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. Okay? Isn't it? I mean, we're seeing a lot of bravado. I don't think a lot of moral courage, actually. And I think that's where we start with our misunderstanding about biblical courage, but it, doesn't, it goes off the rail even farther. So if you really think this story is about that kind of courage that you'd find in a Rambo-type figure instead of in Daniel, you're going to end up with either causing misbelief among people of that they can almost do anything and God will protect them, or despair among people when they do quite try to stand out and then uh, get knocked down and wonder, well, I must not have enough faith. I don't want either of those things to happen to you. Misbelief or unbelief or despair are not the, the answer or the key to this story by any means. So we're going to start by reading the actual text. It's a long one. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them their high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would, should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Now, I don't know if you realize already, this is about 80 years, 70 years after the stories about Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the Persian Empire, which followed the Babylonian 
So then this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was on in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Hmm. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, all are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king. Establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that in no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fell, fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast in the lion's den. 
they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Ooh, yeah, that part of the story, I'm not sure if we bring up in Sunday school. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, thanks for bearing with me for the whole text. I know it's long, but there are some clues throughout it that really help us understand the interpretation. And one of the things that we try to do anytime that we're studying the Bible is not to read into the Bible what we want to see there, but to bring out of the Bible what actually is there. That's the difference. It's called between eisegesis, reading in, and exegesis, finding and reading out. Does that make sense? We all come to the Bible with our preconceived notions, and maybe from Sunday school you have a few of those that's saying, I need to be just like Daniel, and when I am, everything's going to be okay. That's religion, by the way. Religion thinks if I'm good, then God's good to the good, and everything's good. And if I'm bad, then God's, God treats the bad a different way, and that's when bad things happen. Very simplistic moralistic, and not at all this story. So let's look. Daniel 6. These are the three points that we're going to look at. What to expect, how to stand strong, who stands with us. What to expect is, what do you expect in this world? What do you expect from this world? What do you expect? The fact that we talked from the beginning, we've been living in Babylon. We are in Babylon. This is Babylon. It's not the new Jerusalem. <laughs> it's not even close, right? And we're in the middle of that. Christopher Wright puts it well here about Daniel in Babylon. He says, here in Daniel 6, we see a man who is the perfect model of excellence and integrity in his profession, who nevertheless suffers unjust hatred and attack. Daniel is not criticized for being a little slovenly, a little weak at it, nor for his lack of integrity. You know, unlike many who can critique my life, critique the Christian church, and we find, you know, hypocrisy, double standards, uh, favoritism issues, um, biases, you don't see any of those things brought up against Daniel. Rather, the satraps say in Daniel 6, 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Oh, would that be the backhanded compliment I would ever receive? Right? Wouldn't that be great? If the only thing anybody can ever fault me for is not how hard I've worked or what I've done, or what I've said, or my attitude in any matter, but just the only thing I can find, it'd be like, oh, we looked at her ethic, she's such a good worker, she, her knowledge, her skills, her character, we can't find anything wrong with her. She is like the model, the best worker we have. He's like diligent, he is tried harder, he continues to learn. Well, the only thing we can fault her for is the fact that she's like this Christian thing. 
We're not quite sure what that is. Or he, because he's actually like too moral, <laughs> too upstanding. He won't buy into our system. Wouldn't that be great? But notice what Daniel doesn't do. When they scheme against him, when they try to come up with an artificial conflict between his faith and his fidelity to Persia and to Darius, when they come up with an artificial trap for him, Daniel does not complain. He does not protest. He does not um, call out an air of entitlement. He doesn't uh, stop doing what he does. Daniel did not expect to be treated fairly. He didn't expect to have favored treatment because he is so pious or wonderful or good. And I don't think we can either. And this is hard. This is hard because we, have, we grow up in a whole culture that says you need to keep demanding your rights. You need to keep act, act, expecting if you do good things that you'll get rewarded. If you do bad things, you'll get punished. And the reality is in life that doesn't work that way. You know, it's like the child who always cries out, and I've, I cried out as a kid too, that isn't fair, right? And as a parent, you might have said, whoever said life is fair, right? We still need to hear that as an adult, right? Gosh, you know, I'm so good at teaching my kids those things, but not myself. No, you know what? The great news of the Bible, actually, is that you don't get what you deserve. Have you ever thought of that? That's what, it's called the gospel. We'll get to that later. But you do not get what you deserve. And the Bible's explicit as well. In the New Testament, this doesn't go away, this understanding of that Daniel is treated unfairly, even though there's no cause for it doesn't go away. It's a theme throughout the scriptures. And we find in 1 Peter, for instance, when he writes to the early church, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, not, nor be troubled. Don't get freaked out about what's going on if you are treated improperly, poorly, if you're persecuted, if you're maligned. And Peter's only saying what Jesus told him when Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, he's maligned, he's uh, treated terribly by both religious and irreligious people, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it was, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Half of why these other satraps and other leaders and governors hated Daniel is because he could not be manipulated. He could not be compromised. And they hated that because they all were manipulators. They all lived in compromised lives in this midst of this pala, uh, palace intrigue story. If the world's going to find fault in me, let it not be because they actually can find fault in me uh, for my lack of integrity, my hypocrisy, because of my work ethic or my attitude, and not even because that I'm a follower of God and then I kind of have a chip on my shoulder about that and go like, you know, carry that around, but rather that um, there's no fault at all, that I'm not showing any arrogance 
or showmanship about my faith. Now, so there's something very irreducible about Christianity that you need to realize and about the faith in this living God of Daniel as well. And that is, you're gonna be different. It's just, you, there's no way around it. There's something irreducibly strange about you <laughs> to the world. They don't get you, okay? They aren't going to understand it. The world cannot understand Christians. There's this understanding almost, there's a spiritual blindness in the world to why you live the way you do or what you believe or what you're about. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So someone will look at you who is not a Christian, and they're going to just kind of like, What? This makes no sense. What the world is going on in your, you know? Now, how are we to respond to that? When you're not accepted, when you seem like you're not received, accept that. When uh, they don't understand you, understand they're not going to understand you. And be okay with that. Don't freak out about it. Don't start, you know, having a murder complex. Oh, my goodness, they don't get me, you know. Um, but instead, realize that's just the way it is. It's okay. You can, that's called Christian maturity. You can welcome. You can still love. You can still serve. You can still accept them even when they won't accept you. You can still care about them even though they want to cut you off. You can still be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as Jesus said, in such a way that maybe they'll be so like, wait a minute, I don't get, I don't get this, that they start really letting that kind of spin in their mind and simmer in their heart until they finally go like, oh, wow, and see Jesus through you, okay? That's point one. What to expect? Expect to be misunderstood and understand that. <laughs> and then our point two, how to stand strong. This comes out in Daniel 6, verse 10. I think this is one of the key verses. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, you know, the law of the Medes and Persians were, was such that you could not revoke it, change it, even after the king signed it. The king was then under it as well. And so he knew that had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. How do you stand strong? You get down on your knees. Daniel didn't change anything he had already been doing. Notice that. He's about 80 years old by this time. Okay, he was probably about 15, 14 years old when he was taken into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. You know, had a kind of high school, college education for three years. He had been under Nebuchadnezzar, under his son, and then under the shift to the Medes and Persians in that kingdom, and he's about 80 years old. He has been doing this for a long time, three times a day. He opens up his windows he doesn't hide. He didn't protest and scream and yell in public, but he did go home, but he didn't close his windows and hide at the same time. 
And three times a day he prayed towards Jerusalem. Do you know why? Three times a day at the temple, before it was destroyed, the high priests would sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of the people. Morning, noon, and night. And those three times, he would reference himself to what God had done by his grace, showing forgiveness, grace, mercy, the covenant love, and the sacrifice and substitute that Daniel himself needed, and he would kneel down and pray. So Daniel found his identity not where he was, but where God was and had been, and how God had made those promises. Christopher Wright puts it this way, the source of his ultimate values lay not in the city Nebuchadnezzar had built, but in the city Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. Daniel had something to stand on because he knelt down. It wasn't his own bravado. It wasn't his own brave heart. It wasn't his vim and vigor. It wasn't his own steeliness. It was a result of habits over decades and decades and decades of doing the same thing. And what you find is Daniel at age 80 physically weakened, I'm sure, is probably, in a sense, faithfully stronger than ever. Russell Moore said it well in a book I'm reading now called The Courage to Stand. I think it just came out. He said, the way of courage as defined by the gospel is not the pagan virtue of steeliness and fearlessness, much less our ambient culture's picture of winning and displaying or strength and swagger. The picture of courage in Daniel is an 80-year-old man kneeling down three times a day without pomp or circumstance. What we find is to stand strong is not to eliminate your fears, not to deny the realities around you. You aren't there bullying your enemies or trying to flaunt the truth over them or overpower them, but just to kneel down a sign of dependence, by the way. Have you ever noticed that? Kneeling is not a sign of power and proud. You can't do much when you're kneeling. It's a childlike posture. An 80-year-old Daniel is still a child at heart. You know, it reminded me, I didn't, I didn't put this... I, um, one, of, one of the wonderful people I was able to meet in my last church up in Gainesville, Florida, was a doctor named Al Roten. He... Um, he recently died about three years ago. He uh, is called the father of the microsurgery of the brain, the textbook on the anatomy of the brain that's used like in Japan and all over the world, um, is written by Al Roten, put together. He, I think, um, invented 300 different instruments for brain surgery during his life. You'd never know it when you met him at church. And when he went into the hospital one time for a surgery and I came to his bedside and talked with him, his faith, he said, my favorite, my favorite song I still sing every day, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He was still a child. The uh, president of every neurological, neurosurgical society in the world at one time or another has that childlike faith. Isn't that amazing? That is courage, and that is strength, and that is how you stand strong. 
And courage doesn't look that courageous. What Daniel did was nothing, really. He was just carried along in the story. Russell Moore goes on and says, Courage is needed not to do radically important things, but to live out quiet, ordinary life with integrity and with love. You're showing courage by showing up here and dealing with the inconvenience of a face mask and social distancing. You're showing courage by uh, caring for your neighbors, praying for them. You're showing courage by doing a good job at work when you see a lot of other people who are kind of slacking. You're showing courage by creating habits in your life where you keep referencing, like Daniel, your point of strength outside of yourself and your God and his faithfulness. You know, the passage I, I mentioned in 1 Peter goes on, 1 Peter 3. Peter says, you know, so if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. He goes on. Look at how he's talking about courage. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So courage is seen in gentleness, in respect, having a good conscience, willingness to suffer. So I don't expect the world to applaud me, to even value what I might do. I even expect to be misunderstood. But we don't freak out. And we don't need to fight back. And courage is not seen in my, you know, bravado against it. Daniel, he's not a sign of like self-strength and self-help or any of that stuff. He is thrown into the pit of lions. And it is sealed like a tomb. He's there all night alone, and yet he's the one in this story who remains free throughout. King Darius gets duped and is bound by his own foolish law, but Daniel remains free. And ultimately, it's not about Daniel, this story. What we find out ultimately, and the secret to this story, and the understanding of this story and so many others, both in Old Testament and New Testament, is our point number three, who stands with us. And that's where he says in Daniel 6, verse 20 to 22, Darius comes to him and claims, and then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Now, like I've said, this story is really not about Daniel and how great Daniel is, and you better be just like Daniel. It's really about God and how God showed favor to Daniel and how God worked through Daniel and how God, even in Daniel's weakness at age 80, still gets his work done. And what we find out is that when God sent his people into exile in Babylon and caused this to happen in the first place, that God did not abandon them there. God went into exile with them. And here we see that God himself goes into the pit with Daniel. Do you see how Daniel doesn't say, God sent angels, plural, to help me. It says, God sent his angel who shut the mouths. It's very important. There is another in the fire. 
the song that we just sang, is about Daniel chapter 3, where there's another person who shows up in that fire that nobody can figure out. These are all hints at what God is doing and how God is actually working and behind the scenes. God is the one who is working with Daniel in this story. You might be saying, hey, John, you're kind of implying something kind of a little weird. Yeah, well, the Bible's got a lot of weird things going on in it. Because instead of like a philosophical understanding of God being omniscient and omnipotent and almighty and all-knowing and distant and removed from this world, what we have in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, stories like this, as well as the New Testament, is a God who has all of that, but a God who is imminent and present and walks with us and is right alongside of us. And we find this in Genesis chapter 2, that God is walking, weirdly, right, with Adam and Eve in the garden. What are you talking about? But that's what it says. And that in Genesis as well, we've got God showing up to Abraham. Three visitors show up and he knows that the Lord is before him and it's called the angel of the Lord as well as the Lord at the same time. You can read that in Genesis 18. And then as well, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord whom he says afterwards, I wrestled with God and won. Do you understand what's going on here? Again and again, God shows up in a tangible, present way for his people, not just then, also here in this text. There was another in that pit, God's messenger, his angel. Unlike the speculative, abstract God of philosophy of the Greco-Roman world, we have a God of covenant who gets involved with his people, who gets down with them, goes anywhere with them. There's nowhere, and in all time and in all human history, the number one factor of God is his covenant faithfulness that I will be with you always, no matter what, to the end of this time. Daniel, age 80, feeble, powerless, weak. Through him, God shames the strong, the cunning, through the foolishness of one who would continue to pray and kneel, God would shame the wise and the powerful and the cunning. And Daniel is there petting the lions overnight. I don't know if you realize this, though, too, about miracles in the Bible. They are not just raw, naked displays of God's power. Did you know that? They're not just like, you know, God doesn't say, okay, hey, stand back, watch. I just want to show off. You know, he doesn't do like cosmic storm in the sky. I'm going to show you my mightiness. Woo, isn't that great? You know, Jesus was asked to do those types of things. You know, show us a sign so we can believe in you. And he refuses to do those. The Bible is filled with miracles that actually point to God's intention for his creation again. And they are not really... Um, well, you know, so just think of the miracle. Jesus could have wowed the crowds a lot better than by just touching a leopard and heal, leper and healing a leper, right? Or feeding people, the poor and the hungry, or um, giving sight to a blind man. He could have wowed them by, you know, so many other miracles, so many other displays. The devil wanted him to do it, jump off the temple and kind of, you know, woo, just kind of land nicely and everybody gets to see it because there's thousands of people there. He wouldn't do it because that's not what miracles are. They're not a naked display of power and they are not 
really a suspension of the natural order of the world. They are actually a restoration of God's created order. So the miracle that we see of these lions not attacking Daniel, but at peace with him, in harmony with him. Actually, the prophet Isaiah speaks about a day when this will be. He says in Isaiah 6, The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That momentary night in the pit was a display of what God's original intent for his creation to be at full harmony with each other and what God is going to bring about one day. Every miracle that Jesus ever did in his life was a display of what God intends for all of his creation when he renews heaven and earth. Isn't that amazing? They're not just raw displays of power to show off. And this one wasn't either. And to fulfill that promise in Isaiah 11, you will have to read a little more of it. You find that there is going to be one, a messianic figure who brings this about, one in a sense who's greater than Daniel, one who is wiser than Daniel, one who is much more righteous than Daniel, one who is even more innocent than Daniel was in this situation, one who is even more dependent on God, his father, than Daniel showed it about, one who gets thrown into a tomb with the stone sealed as well, and one who is given over to the wild beasts to devour. I don't know if you realize this. One of the Psalms that Jesus actually recites from the cross itself is Psalm 22, the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later on, We find this in the same psalm. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Daniel is delivered from death by God's grace. Jesus delivers you through his death. When the angel of God rolls the stone away, he's already gone. Death could not hold him down. So coming back again to this understanding of courage and the work of Jesus and the gospel message that we get out of this text, Russell Moore says this, those who defeat the devil do so not by their whirling outrage, but by something that appears relatively weak by comparison, the blood of the cross and the word of their testimonies. Jesus knew that the actual battle was a battle that could only claim victory by freeing humanity from slavery to the appetites and from the accusation of the evil one. That took no swords and sorcery, but a sacrificial offering. We see what God is willing to do to rescue Daniel. And we see what God is willing to do to rescue you. That's what this story is really about what God is willing to do and where God is willing to go to bring you out of the pit and to give you life. So a few clarifications to wrap this thing up, okay? And I think we find from this passage a few things. First of all, courage to kneel, okay? Courage is not mainly uh, seen in dramatic defiance, but in humility. 
When a follower of Jesus refuses to be defined by the ways of this world, by any political ideology or personality or cultural majority that might be around, but by Jesus himself, and to do that daily. Courage to take risk. You know, when you're threatened, it's so often we want to kind of build a fortified force field around us in one of two ways. Either we try to find a lot of like-minded people and kind of get together and then start shooting our arrows and words off on every direction and kind of feel like safety in the mass of other like-mindedness, or we just tend to just kind of burrow down and hunker in and avoid all conflict altogether. Both the boisterous protest and the chameleon-like compromise and conformity are just self-protection. Here, Daniel does neither. He willingly risks his life by doing what he's always done, kneeling down in prayer. And I see courage and habits in this story. The hidden habits that Daniel has been doing for decades upon decades all of a sudden come to fruition in his old age. When I cultivate habits, private life that fits in and has the reference point being God, all of a sudden the strength I can have in any circumstance starts to come out when I need it. And I think this is the courage of the crucified. Only those who've been crucified with Christ really have the courage to stand. The Bible says, you've already died. You've already been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You've been united with Jesus Christ in your baptism into death, just as he has been raised to glory, to the new life that God has given you. You too have that new life. Everyone who has died with Christ, who has received the good news of Jesus Christ, all a sudden you no longer need the approval of the world. You no longer need to fear what anybody else can do to you because nobody can do anything to you ultimately. You have God with you no matter where you are. So you can stand strong. And that's why Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. With that passage... We're going to finish and pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed this day that you would come with us into the worst places in our lives when we are in the pit, when we are placed at jeopardy and you are right with us, that you don't abandon us, that you come into our exile, you come into our needs, you come into our lives. We're amazed, Lord Jesus, that you not only do that to be by us, but to take our place, to suffer for us, to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We are amazed at that. All we can do is say, wow, what a savior we have today, Lord. It's not really about Daniel, your servant. It's about you who gave him favor. And we pray that you would give us that kind of favor here that we would understand from him the kind of courage we can have in our day and age, the kind of posture we can have to this world, the kind of um, default uh, lifestyle we can have of praying and giving and serving and loving and risking and being vulnerable to the needs of others, all for the sake of your glory in their lives, Lord God. And we know, just like Daniel, we can do that. A story of courage, Lord, is not a story of, you know, a a general in front of an army going into battle, but an 80-year-old man 
kneeling in prayer before you like a child. Jesus, you love us. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. Thank you, Lord, for this picture, this portrait, this chapter, this story. Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives this day. Lord, we lift up people who need your care and love and mercy and grace in so many ways. There are so many both online right now and here in person. We're just going to offer those things to you this day in the posture of our neediness, but in the posture of strength as a result because our strength is found in you. So for the healing, Lord, of the nations, the healing of our community, our world, our nation right now, for the healing, Lord, of bodies, for the healing and reconciliation and relationships. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us and that you would use us in mighty ways this day. All this we lift up to you in Jesus' name.